Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. The Secret Library Podcast is brought to you by listeners like you via the Secret Library Podcast Patreon. You can check it out and become a supporter at patreon.com slash secretlibrary. This is the Secret Library Podcast, and this is episode 134. My guest today is David R. Gillum, who is the New York Times best-selling author of City of Women. He studied screenwriting at the University of Southern California before transitioning into fiction. After moving to New York City, he spent more than a decade in the book business, and he now lives with his family in Western Massachusetts. In writing his new novel, Annalise, he spent six years researching Anne Frank in her world, immersing himself in the available material and traveling to important landmarks of her life. So... I can't think of a more intimidating character to take on than real live person, incredibly beloved Anne Frank. So I was eager to talk to David about the process of spending six years really immersed in the world of Anne Frank and what it was like to write such an intimidating, I wouldn't, I don't know. I think it's more the process to me feels intimidating than the person herself, but such a beloved figure and bringing her into a novel. So I really enjoyed our conversation and I know you will enjoy hearing it as well. So if you've ever dreamed of going big with the figure you want to bring into your book, this is your episode. So here we go with David Gillum. Hi, David. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. I'm really pleased to be here. Yeah, I have been eager to discuss this book because I can't really think of a more intimidating character to take on than Anne Frank. And I'm, I want to go all the way back to the beginning. Obviously, you're interested in Germany, given the subject of City of Women. But I, I was wondering how it came to you that you wanted to take Anne Frank's life and kind of rework the history so that we got to keep her a lot longer. Well, it was a really long process, actually. Um, I, you know, had, I had not read Anne Frank's diary in the in middle school, which, you know, where a lot of people are first exposed to it. Um, and in fact, I hadn't read it up into my twenties. And then I read, um, Philip Ross, the ghostwriter, and I don't know um, if you're familiar with that particular book of his, but it, it, it's his first Zuckerman book, and he plays a writer coming of age, and in it he meets a, 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 Western, or a Western European refugee from uh, the war, Jewish refugee from the war, and in his mind he convinces himself that... Um, this girl is actually Anne Frank having survived. Now that had nothing to do with what I actually ended up writing, but right. it was, it was my first introduction really to Anne Frank and to her work was through Roth. Um, and, uh, 
And so I read this book and I really liked it. And in, in the end of the book, you know, Zuckerman's character, the Zuckerman character, you know, realizes that it was just a fantasy and it was just a story he was writing. Um, but I was so interested in that that I immediately picked up her diary and I was just thunderstruck by it. It was one of those few books that I actually burst out into tears reading. Um, mm. And it, 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 it struck me so hard that here was this young woman who was so intense and so insightful and perceptive and so talented at such an incredibly tender age that I was, I was astonished. And um, I became somewhat obsessed with Anne Frank and how I could represent her in my, in my own way. I mean, I, I had also been doing paintings at the time, and so I think I did five paintings of Anne Frank. But I had it in my head that I wanted to write about her too. And at first I was just going to to write the the story, the full story of what happened to her, you know, after their arrest. And I was about 28, I think, at the time. So this was a few years ago. Um, and uh, I realized about halfway through that I was avoiding her as a character. I was writing about other characters around her. I was I was making up characters in order to carry the, you know, carry the water of the action. Um, and I, I, for some reason, just couldn't get near her. And I mm. think it was because she was such an icon. And so I put it aside. Um, and then for a long time, and then when I, we first, my wife and I first moved to Western Mass, um, I had had another idea um, that I was going to write about it except I was going to write about what would have happened had she lived. And at that point, that's when this book sort of was born. Mm. Um, because rather than just write this whole story about, oh, and then she's, she dies in the concentration camp, I thought, well, no, uh, I wanted to be able to, to, to sort of give her the life that she didn't have. Um, and so... I started writing it then, and again, I couldn't quite get near it. I wrote the first page of what is still the first page of the book, but that's about it. <laughs> um, and it wasn't until City of Women came out, and I was starting on the next book that I really said, okay, I want to try this again. Um, and, and and I did, and... Um, it was it was quite a long road. It took me six and a half years to finish this book. Um, and I went off in several directions that I ended up um, disposing of, discarding. Um, but uh, finally, uh, the end product was uh, was this. So it took me three tries before I finally managed to have the horses to be able to to be able to do it. Amazing. Well, I, I think. I can see why, just because I can think of many ways in which I would find it terrifying to take this character on. So I imagine you have your own reasons. And I guess since you said it was so difficult at first to get near her as a character, and she does feel so alive on the page of this book, what was your process of getting to know the Anne that you write about in this book, the one who did come home? 
Well, I think it had something to do with the false starts that I that I began with. The the third time that I did start with the book and was and was actually writing her as a character. At first, it was still just a mess. You know, st the action for one thing, the action seemed to swirl around her, and she seemed to be just in the middle of it, uh, very reactionary to it, and and that was telling me something was wrong. Um, mm. so I think that it was just a process of, okay, this isn't working. I really have to, uh, try, try to be more direct that, um, that I finally started to be able to, to hear her. And for me, characters always, it's a, it's a very difficult thing to, to explain, but sometimes characters just suddenly form in front of me almost. Um, mm. I, 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 I kind of feel them. I can start to hear them. Um, I, I know, I know how to proceed with them. I, uh, other, other characters, sometimes I might have to really kind of work at and cobble together and it takes them a while to develop, but certain characters can sort of just come to me already pretty solidly developed at the core. And that happened with Anna finally, uh, when I was writing the scene where she returns to the head octohoys, the house behind, after uh, she has survived the camps, uh, to be greeted by the all the helpers who had helped them during hiding, um, and basically return to her old life, and she's there with her father, and they're and they're about to walk in the building, and when I wrote that scene, I realized, okay, I've got her now. Uh, mm. I, felt, I felt as if I actually had the character that I wanted to to move forward with. And then Margot. Margot Margo was a very important uh, addition to the whole story and to Anne especially because um, Margot, through the book, who she's not a ghost, but she is Anne's ghost, um, you know, her sister Margot who did not survive, even in the book, um, is, uh, is the counterpoint to Anne throughout. I mean, it's, she's in Anne's head, you know, always saying, well, shouldn't you be doing this? And shouldn't you be doing that? And it really al allowed me uh, the device to help develop Anne in ways that um, I thought were more dramatic than just, you know, talking about what was inside Anne's head and what she was thinking, because it dramatized the, the thought process. Absolutely. Well, as someone who's studied screenwriting, do you find, I mean, I can't help but think of that bit in um, adaptation when he says, God help you if you use voiceover dialogue. I think of this, <laughs> this process of, of really a character who obviously we know her primarily through her diary before your mm -hmm. novel. So we are basically reading her internal monologue and that's the way we all know her. And to try to communicate that character as someone who's out in the world without resorting to, to voiceover dialogue or, or a similar construct or just writing another diary. Um, there is action and interaction. And I agree that, that Margot is her addition does allow that to be a conversation, which I hadn't thought of it that way, but, I think that's a really ingenious way to approach that. Well, thank you. Yeah, I mean, and, and it wasn't—it wasn't actually 
I tend to write very instinctually. Mm. A a friend of mine once said there are two kinds of writers. They're pantsers and plotters. Yep. Uh, You know, writers who write by the seat of their pants and others who plot everything out. I am quite definitely a pantser. Um, I just sort of knew that I wanted Margot in there as that ghost figure. And then as um, time developed, as the story developed, I realized just how incredibly valuable she was. Uh, as a character device, um, so yeah, that that worked well, and that way I didn't have to try to recreate Anne's voice in a diary, which might not have been respectful. Or so I, I think just trying to do it dramatically. And also, you're you're absolutely right. Um, I was trained as a screenwriter, and I basically still write novels as if they're screenplays. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I see it in my head. And I describe it. Um, so um, dialogue and advancing action through dialogue and that sort of thing comes very naturally to me. Um, I like writing dialogue. And um, and so it was just, uh, uh, I think, uh, um, an important device. Absolutely. I think it's something that lots of people fear. They, they worry about writing bad dialogue or the dialogue is difficult. And... I think that, you know, being trained in it, do you have any, what, what do you think about, or is it just something you play the conversation in your head? I'm curious in your thoughts of this, because it was all very convincing dialogue throughout the book. It's noteworthy. Well, thank you. Um, I, it just comes, I just start writing it down. I, you know, mm. <laughs> I'm sort of listening to it in my head <laughs> and writing it down. Um, and sometimes the conversations go off on their own uh, as well. And I, I sometimes have to sort of curb them because I, I'm suddenly going off in a direction that I didn't expect, or I will sometimes say, well, let's see where that goes. Um, but I, I don't, I don't think about the dialogue that much as I'm writing it. It's just, it just sort of comes. Um, and, um, and moves the action forward. I mean, in, in general, I'm, I am one of those writers who believes that the characters have power under their under themselves. Um, there was a, a book that I wrote many years ago, long before City of Women, which was never published, but uh, there was a murder took place, and I swear to you, I did not know she was going to do it until the scissors was in her hands. Wow. So... <laughs> So sometimes I really feel like I just have to give the character their head and um, and see where they go with it. And and that's sort of how I approach the dialogue. I basically, I may know what I want to, to get, you know, the point I want to get to, or I may not be exactly sure the point I want to get to, in which case I just let it go and see where, uh, see where it, ha- what, ha- what happens with it. So how I am very interested in this because I think a lot of there seems to be a trend. There used to be this big like everybody's a pantser and now everybody's kind of moving into this outlining trend. And we're talking a lot about spreadsheets, which I I enjoy, but I still I I kind of think of myself as a I don't know how to make a hybrid word between plotter and pantser, pantser, (laughs) something (laughs) like I like having plot points and then pantsing between those points. But I'm interested in how. 
you married this desire to be, you know, to write as a pantser with extensive research into, you know, historical writing to me is really tricky in terms of, you know, managing, okay, this is, these are the things that actually happened. You're, you're stuck with that history up to a certain point and the sort of history that's happening in the world that you're writing about. And yet the story is flowing. So how did you, how did you manage those two impulses? Um, it was much more difficult in this book than it was in say city of women. Um, the, the actual historical backdrop of the, of the, of the, of their environment is sort of separate. And, and that's, you know, I'm a stickler for historical accuracy, you know, obsessively so. Um, so everything that happens in the book, in the historical milieu, actually happened, uh, mm. regardless of what actually happened to the, to the individual characters, which is fictional, or the fictional characters. But then I had another layer with this particular book, because I was not only dealing with a, a true historical period, I was dealing with characters who I had you know, imagined um, based on actual people. Um, right. And so not, I was dealing with the, the broader historical context of what was happening in Amsterdam or Europe or the war, and I was dealing with what was specifically happening to these families who were uh, being persecuted or trying to help uh, the those who were being persecuted. And, um, and I wanted that to be correct, too. So that was a that was a much different thing than say city of women where in city of women everybody's fictional so i was i was I had free reign but i didn't here you know the, my main set of characters were pretty well prescribed certainly in the first half of the book because the first half of the book um is takes place uh before they go into hiding and then right. while they're in hiding and then after they've been arrested so it's following the historical line of what became of these people. So that was even more difficult. And of course I had to make more decisions about friends and, and who to leave in and who to leave out and, you know, to, to give the impression. But I mean, if I had added all of Anne's, Anna's friends in there, I, the book would have been a thousand pages long and nobody would have been able to follow it. So I had to concentrate on a few uh, that I knew would be of, of great dramatic service to the story. How did you track all of it? Like, how did you keep track of like, did you have a calendar laid out with this is when these things are happening? Because I keep thinking about, you know, there were things that that were crucial in the story that were elements like this was on the news today or this, you know, we saw this happening in the street and this is, you know, as she's walking around um, with another character and that these kinds of dramatic moments keep happening. And I'm wondering how you kept track of all of that as you were writing, or is that something that you handled, you know, as you were revising? I'm just fascinated by this process um, because the, it's the always answer, crippled me. Historical <laughs> fiction. <laughs> the answer is both that that's how I did it. I did, you know, keep sort of rudimentary calendars. Um, I would, as I was writing, I would suddenly say, okay, so what's going on here? <laughs> and I'd have to go back to one of my timelines somewhere and see what was actually happening. 
and tried to use that as part of the drama. Um, and, uh, um, you know, I, I've always looked for details to try to represent the, the, um, the environment. Uh, in City of Women, I, I had the ability for her to put her on a bus every once in a while mm -hmm. or a train. And it was just a small, you know, six or seven paragraphs um, that I had to sort of dramatize a, a little travelogue there, but it was, it, it had an emotional punch, but it was really there just so that the reader could see the city around her as she was on that bus. Um, so that's the sort of thing I tried to do with, uh, Annalise as well. Um, trying to like the pickle vendor when she had smoked that cigarette I took a puff of the cigarette and then had to go get a pickle. I had read somewhere about the pickle vendors who were yelling, you know, best pickles in town, and that they had put a little uh, nutmeg on the, uh, I think it is, uh, on the on the pickle to as an extra special taste, and that she had bought a pickle in order to cover this, the 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 uh, the smell of the tobacco on her breath. Right. Um, so Rebel. I mean that's that's exactly right. But the, but I but I came across that little historical detail about the pickle vendor, and I thought, oh, that's perfect. Um, so that's the sort of thing that I always look for. But as far as the actual timeline, I always had to, um, you know, I was either saying, okay, so where are we? As I before I write this next part, we're in you know September, October, and what's happening? Or I'd have to go back as I was writing and just sort of double check what's going on. Or in the revisions, I would have to say, well, did I get that right? Am I? Oh, wait a minute, did I move into another month, or did I? <laughs> I, I would start writing things on writing notes to myself on the side, you know, make sure this happened in September. <laughs> sort right. Of thing. So it was tough. Yeah. It just, it seems like I can see it going in either direction. That on the one hand, I can see it being really tough and hard to track. And on the other hand, I could see it almost working as scaffolding. Like this is the series of historical events that happened, how, you know, I'm stuck with them. So how am I going to build my story inside of that? I mean, was there any way that it also supported the process because things had to go in a certain direction because of the history? Yes, it did. Um, especially I found, uh, in the second half of the book, which is totally fictional, um, that I relied on those, um, those historical signposts sort of, of what was actually happening, uh, to, uh, to structure the drama and when, what was happening happened. For instance, the, 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 uh, the, the story of the, the Dutch government uh, declaring all Germans to be enemy nationals. Right. And uh, when a certain amount of Germans were deported from Amsterdam, and that only happened once to my knowledge, and it happened in September of a certain year. <laughs> so I, in order to, to have that as part of the book, I had to make sure that the action led up to that part, to that month, uh, you know, right at that time. So it did give me those signposts in a way that was... Demanding and helpful at the same time. Um, 
you know, uh, I couldn't, I couldn't ignore them. I couldn't move them, but at least I did know that this had to happen at this certain point. The first half of the book, there were, it was a little less demanding, uh, because I basically had Anne's diary to, uh, you know, to tell me a lot of what was going on. Um, and right. I just imagined in between, uh, the, the pages, um, or I, I, I've always been astonished by that very short, um, film that caught her looking out the window. Yes. Uh, there was a wedding happening in her building and they were filming the wedding. And if you looked up, you saw, saw her sticking her head out the window. And so I dramatized that from the inside of the apartment. I was actually lucky enough to be in that apartment and got to look out that window. Um, uh, so it was quite something. Um, but do you see now here I am rambling a bit. <laughs> <laughs> no, absolutely. I mean, I think this is all the fascinating detail that it takes to get close to a character like that. I mean, so you've talked about, you spent six years working on this book and, and mm -hmm. really diving into the material. What kinds of research did you do? Where did you go? I mean, you were in the building where she looked out the window. What places did you go to? Just so those listening well, can see, let's say they fall in love with a historical character and want to take them on. Let's see what the road ahead of them will look like in terms right. of research and experience. Well, I, I bought uh, and had been for years buying every book about Anne Frank that was available. When I first started this project, back when I was 28, there was virtually nothing other than her writing and mm. Ernst Schnabel's book, uh, which has various titles. I think in the United States it was called Portraits and Courage. I think in Europe it was called uh, In the Footsteps of Anne Frank. But that was about it. Uh, now, of course, there are n any number of books. You know, Meet Geese wrote uh, Anne Frank Remembered. Other friends of hers have written books. So I have a, a, huge, a, a large shelf of Anne Frank books that I have still have all the, and probably will always now, have all the little post-it notes and bent page, you know, dog-eared <laughs> pages on it and little circles to try to, that I would run across something and try to remind myself to try to use it. Um, I, I don't write night, no, uh, note cards and things like that. I just don't have the patience for it. So I, I do it in the most inefficient way possible by sticking uh, <laughs> post-its in there and, do and dog-earing pages and making cryptic notes on the side of the margin. Um, but so that was the first thing I did for many years was just you know, read her writing and read the books or th that, uh, that were coming out about her. Uh, but then I started traveling too. And this was, I had, it was before I started before city of women was released. Um, mm. I went on a tour that was sort of a Holocaust tour it was, uh, run by a man named Cor Sijic, who, um, had been, one of the uh, the managers of the Anne Frank house who known Otto, and I had noticed, and I wasn't aware of any of this when I registered for his tour, but I had noticed that he seemed to be sort of following on Frank um, mm. on the tour. Um, so I said, "Well, this sounds great to me." 
And so I went there and we saw the, the, uh, the Anne Frank house for the first time. Um, and then from there, we went to Vesterbork, which there's almost nothing left um, of Vesterbork. That's the transit camp where the Nazis sent all the, uh, the Dutch Jews who they had been arrested. I'm right. just going to give you a quick aside on Vesterborg. It's, it's an interesting thing. Yes, please. The the, the, uh, the Dutch government had set up this this refugee camp for German Jews coming across the border. Um, in the outlying areas of of uh, of Drenthe province, um, and. Uh, and so when the Germans invaded, suddenly here was this camp full of German Jews already set up, already functioning. So they had this perfect uh, opportunity. They just started using the, the Jewish administration within the camp to run the camp um, and started transferring all the Jews from all over the Netherlands into this one transit area. Um, and unfortunately, of course, from Vesterbork, you went to either Auschwitz-Birkenau, uh, you went to Sobibor, or you went to Bergen-Belsen. Uh, right. Bergen-Belsen Bergen at, at that time, in the beginning, was considered one of the paradise camps. Oh, it was shocking. In, it was inside Germany, um, whereas Sobibor and uh, Birkenau were in the east. And Zobobor was, was nothing but an extermination camp. Um, but um, we went from Vesterbork into Germany, and there we saw Belsen. Um, and that's where Margot and Anna actually died of typhus, and they're buried in one of the huge mass graves um, with these stone faces on them that say something like 5,000 5, dead lie here or something to that effect, or 2,000 or 3,000. Um, and uh, it's, it's really just a cemetery now. I think they've excavated some of the kitchen buildings, but all the barracks were burned by the British when they were liberated because they were, they were uh, just you know, pestilent. They were, the typhus was rampant in the camp. And so as soon as they got them cleared out, they just burnt the, the barracks to the ground. Um, so we, we went to, to Belsen. And that was really just for me to try to, I don't know, to, <laughs> it sounds a little silly or pretentious, but the idea of communing with Anne, where she was buried somewhere, just felt like something I wanted to do. Um, mm. and, uh, and then from, uh, Belsen, we went to Berlin briefly. I love Berlin. Um, mm -hmm. and then from Berlin, we went to, um, Auschwitz-Birkenau. And, right. um, that was quite something. Auschwitz, there, there are two different camps actually. They're, they're about a mile and a half apart. Uh, Auschwitz was the original camp. That's the one that has the infamous sign over the gate, right by Fry. Right. But seeing it on this bright sort of spring day, these stone buildings, and uh, it, it, it was hard to imagine what it was. It just looked like uh, 
a collection of of well kept you know middle European buildings. Um, even if you went into into the cells where the people were tortured or went into the makeshift gas chamber that they had built there, it really, I, I had a hard time feeling what was actually actually happened to it happened there. But then we went to Birkenau, and uh, you have no trouble feeling what happened at Birkenau. Um, wow. The, there were five um, crematorias in Birkenau. The Germans destroyed them all before they left, so they're just rubble now. Um, many of the barracks are still there. I don't believe that Anna's barracks still stands still. It's barracks 29. And it's a little tricky figuring out which one is barracks 29 because they would change the numbers. Hmm. But um, sometimes. But um, I did. there were some of the barracks still standing in the women's camp. And, uh, you know, with the beds that were just beds, you call them beds, sleeping platforms where the, that were just boards in between these rock and concrete pillars. And they had, you know, they'd have eight or nine people sort of jammed in there. Uh, so I really wanted to get a sense of as much as I possibly could, you know, decades later, perfectly safe wandering around as a, as a tourist uh, almost, uh, although that word tourist and Birkenau doesn't quite mix. Uh, but as much as I could to be able to get the smallest sense of what it must have really been like to have been there. And, and I'm very tactile. I'm a very tactile person. So to be able to touch the wall and touch the, the, um, the, the pallets there um, was very helpful to me. Um, and I, I did write that single scene in Birkenau, the prayer, um, with Anna and her sister and mother. Um, right. And then I left the tour at that point because I, the, the other things at the end of the tour didn't interest me that much. Next year, I went back to Amsterdam, um, and there I had the good fortune to be able to go into um, the the flat that the Franks lived in before they went into hiding. It had been refurbished at the time to, um, to, I mean, obviously all the actual furniture was gone, but um, yes, to, of course. to the best of their ability to look like uh, it was when they lived there and to see that window that she looked out of and, and the stairs that she would have run up and uh, the bathroom faucets were original still. And you thought, God, you know, this is where I'm sure... Mrs. Frank, when the girls were little, we're giving them baths in this little tub, and uh, it was just, uh, it was quite, quite wonderful. Um, and I was also, uh, was given uh, tours of, uh, of the area, of the, the, uh, the Jewish quarter, the old Jewish quarter in Amsterdam, the Transvaal uh, area, which figures in the book, um, and um, and then, of course, I went back to the Anne Frank house another uh, three or four times. Um, they were kind enough to let me into the kitchen area, which was, wasn't normally open to the public, and oh, also uh, Otto's office. Um, at, at my friend Cor's request, who had you know, organized that tour that I had been on the year before. Um, and... Uh, 
So that's what I did there too, and just tried to just physically absorb as much of it as possible as I could. Um, Absolutely. And then came I mean, back. I think those those settings are so important, and I think that if you don't have access to the character, obviously, if you don't have access to the person you're writing about, but being everywhere they had been can allow you to sort of fill in the gaps, what you know about them and all of the letters and the diary and, and who she might be. And something that I found really fascinating and I think is is something to consider is, you know, if you're writing kind of an alternate alternate history for a character, the, the fact that it would be impossible for her to come back from the experience that she had and be the same person she was in the diary. And I found that really striking that the fact that she's changed and has both a new relationship with who she is and also a relationship with who she was before this all happened in terms of, you know, who she was in the diary, who we know, and then who she is in the book later. Um, it, it, it is a different person by necessity. And I thought it was fascinating to witness that transformation. Did, how did that feel for you? Well, uh, uh, yes, uh, and it was it was a delicate process because again I, I I certainly wanted to you know my 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 first the prime directive of this book was to maintain the respect for Anne's legacy. Um, I I did not want to take liberties with her even even in the character that was based on her um, that um, I that would be incorrect. The change that she went through, I always wanted to bring her out of it eventually in some way. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, she's, she's, she's enraged by the time she gets back from Berkenau. Um, she's raw. She, she's angry at everybody in the world. And it, it, and in the book, it, it focuses, that rage is focused a great deal on her father because the way he is dealing with it, at least my character of, of Pym uh, is dealing with it, is he wants to say, it's all in the past. We honor the, those who we lost. We, we keep them in our hearts, but we cannot dwell on grief because it will kill us all. Um, and that sh Anna finds just infuriating. Um, and so that sets up the conflict for the second half of the book. But um, I always wanted to to bring it back to uh, a sense of hope. I mean, there's and, and Anna provided me with the perfect vehicle to do this too. When she wrote probably the most famous line in her entire in the entire diary, you know, regardless, I still believe that people are good at heart. Yes. And I had heard many people over the past years say, would she ask the question, would she still have believed that? Um, and so that really sort of informed the progression of her character. Did she still believe that? Could she still believe that? Possibly after everything she went through. And, you know, my idea was that in a way... Yes, she still could, even though she was scarred, even though uh, 
you know, I think I say something like that maybe, might be, could be still good at heart. Right. Um, at, at the end of the book. Um, and, you know, her own guilt at surviving, which is tremendous, especially for just, you know, a, a, young, a young person, somebody who was 15 and 16 when they were going through this um, and having, you know, losing her sister, losing her mother, all that um, uh, was such a burden for the character and uh, that she had to find some way to live with it, else it was going to crush her. And so she decides that, you know, her writing is, is still the thing that's going to save her. Yes, that was, that was very moving and inspiring to watch. And I want to thank you so much for, for coming on to talk about the story, because I feel that people listening maybe will feel a sense of what it is to take on a historical character and be able to bring that experience into their own writing and to work on a character that has historical context, even though it may be intimidating. It seems like it can both serve you and intimidate you along the way. <laughs> yes, yes. Well, thank you so much for having me. I really had a good time. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening to the Secret Library podcast. We hope you've enjoyed this week's show. You can keep the conversation going by leaving a comment in the show notes at secretlibrarypodcast.com or visit us on Facebook at facebook.com slash secretlibrarypodcast. You can also connect directly with me on Twitter or Instagram where I'm Caro Donahue. That's at C-A-R-O-D-O-N-A-H-U-E. I look forward to chatting with you there. See you next week. Until then, happy writing.